and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now... Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us today for another incredible episode. But before we get to today's guest, I'd like to share a bit about myself. So I work as an executive coach and a mental performance coach, and I founded a company called Strong Skills. At Strong Skills, our team is on a mission to change how the world thinks about soft skills. And I hope you will start embracing this concept that we call strong skills. We got to change calling these skills soft. We got to. We believe that labeling competencies like leadership, teamwork, and communication as soft devalues and minimizes the importance of these skills. One of the strong skills that we talk about and that we teach It's called Shift Your Mind, and the teachings come from my book, which came out last October. If you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our past guests, then I know you're going to love the book. You can head over to Amazon or anywhere books are sold to purchase, and if you like listening to podcasts, you can even listen to the book via Audible. You can go over to Audible and download the book. Also, I can't tell you how much I appreciate all of you who have already purchased it and have written us reviews or have sent me a note saying that shifting your mind has been essential to help you perform better. So thank you, thank you, thank you to all of you who continue to support Shift Your Mind. Additionally, I run an accelerator program which involves one-on-one coaching. It involves monthly Zoom calls, an annual retreat. I'm a big believer in one-on-one coaching combined with group experiences. So the Accelerate is what I've created for individuals who are interested in growing, learning, and figuring out how they can lead and perform better. Our current Accelerator is full, but there will be another one coming up shortly. If you're interested in one-on-one coaching, please email me, brian at strongskills.co. Once again, that's brian at strongskills.co. Our clients are industry agnostic. They range in age, they range in title, but they all are curious people who are driven and ambitious and competitive. So if that is something that resonates with you, I'd love to hear from you. Lastly, if you enjoyed today's episode or any of our previous conversations, we'd love it if you went over to iTunes and wrote us a review. 
just like with the book Shift Your Mind, reviews really do move the needle for us. Uh, It really helps us expand our reach. So thanks to all of you who have already done so. And let's continue to share these intentional performers with the world. Now to today's guest. Today's guest is Dr. Kenza Gunter. And in the world of sports psychology, she has become a mainstay, a leader, and somebody who's really leading the charge in evolving and changing how the sports world thinks about mental performance and mental health. She's based in Atlanta, Georgia. She works with a lot of the professional sports teams there, and she provides services to individuals, teams, and organizations, and describes her work as being at the intersection of mental health, mental performance, culture, and sport. So in this conversation, obviously, we're going to talk about mindset and what you need to do to be your best from a performance standpoint, but we also go beyond the lines, beyond the field, beyond the turf, wherever it is that athletes perform. Uh, Dr. Gunter is also currently the president of the Association of Applied Sports Psychology. So we talk about sports psychology and what it's like to have underrepresentation in certain industries and how Dr. Gunter has made it her mission to really change how we think about inclusion and how we think about what it's like to be an only in an industry. And at the end of the day, I think this conversation is as much about the human experience as it is about performance psychology. So Dr. Kenza Gunter is on it. She's super sharp and she's somebody who is constantly blazing a trail and trying to leave this world better than how she found it. So without further ado, I'm so excited to present to you, Dr. Kenza Gunter. Kenza, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. When I asked you, hey, what do you want to talk about? You said, hey, just let's just have a real conversation. And you're, you're my kind of people. If, if we can just do that, then we'll be in, in good shape. And so I had a question I was ready to start with. But then when you said that, I said, you know what? I'm actually curious about something else. So over your left shoulder, this is only going to be on audio. So we don't use the video. So people can't see this. But over your left shoulder is this tree and this wow. logo. And I'm looking at it. And it's got some gold and maybe red or magenta. Can you talk about what's in your background? Because I think it's pretty cool. Yeah. So first of all, thank you um, for the invitation and for the opportunity to be in this discussion with you. I really am looking forward to it. And the tree, the tree of life. Um, This tree has been a topic of conversation, I think, for the last 12 to to 15 months, as long as we've been engaging virtually. Um, It is a tree of life. And I I really see a lot of symbolism in the tree and and parallels in, in things that we can learn from a tree and how that applies to life. So the tree is the symbol for my business. Um, My business is Gunner Psychological Services, Gratitude, Patience, and Strength. We can talk about that if you'd like. But for me, the tree just really represents um, the seasons of life, right? When we see a tree in different seasons of life, we don't judge the tree for the season that it's in. In winter, when the leaves fall off, we don't try to put the leaves back on. In spring, when we see buds, we don't try to rush the buds into becoming full bloom. We simply allow the tree to be in the season that it's in. And I think there's a lot that we can take from that as we think about the seasons of our own life. A lot of times when we think about the world of performance and sport, we're always trying to move on to the next. And I think it's really important to just embrace the seasons and the changes and transitions and process that go along with those seasons as a part of our journey towards success or or whatever it is that we're trying to accomplish. So I really do embrace the message of the tree that way. I think another thing that stands out for me is trees, Um, trees can grow anywhere if they have strong, a strong root system. 
And so it's not always about where you are, right? But it's, it's sometimes it's about making sure that your root system is strong because that root system will allow you to, to withstand um, whatever surface you're on, thinking about the tree, but also it allows the tree to grow and extend its branches. So trees have roots to hold firm. They have branches that extend and they navigate through seasons and we let them do that respecting the seasons that they're in and allowing them to continue on their growth journey. All right, so I'm glad you went to roots because what I see when I see that tree, the first thing I see are these roots and there's all these roots coming out. And earlier today, I was talking to a, a, a coach in sports and we were texting and he was talking about anchors and that he wants his guys to have anchors in what they do. And I really thought of those anchors as values and that they're, clear on their values. And then I challenged him. I said, okay, now that you have your anchors, I, the imagery I had of the anchor was a boat and that a boat needs an anchor if it's going to be grounded, but then eventually you have to take the anchor out right. and either it's a sail or a motor and, and then there's choppy waters. And oh. so I think both of us probably like analogies, mm -hmm. um, but, but I'd love for you to go there. So if you've got these roots and, and you're grounded in them, how do you use that with your clients? Is it, is it thinking about values? Is it thinking about mission? When you're talking about the tree of life and you're thinking about the, the value of the roots, how do you think about that? Yeah, so I think about it in terms of kind of like what you said, what keeps you grounded, right? When, when the storms of life, as they were, are raging, what still allows you to stand fast where you are, right? You know, we've seen images of trees that bend, but they don't break. Again, I think that can be attributed to um, not only the way the tree is constructed, but really the root system. So for me, when I think of my values, I just said it a moment ago, uh, my business is, is called Gunter Psychological Services, but the values underneath that are gratitude, patience, and strength. And I really took a lot of time to kind of come up with these values because I wanted to think about what are some characteristics and some principles that I want not only to guide how I am in business, but also guide kind of what I think is really important in life in general, not only for myself, but for those that I'm serving as well. So I think you have to have gratitude for the journey, right? Understanding that the journey will bring ups and downs, but, but learning to have a perspective of gratitude allows you to embrace the things that happen so that you can learn from them and grow from them rather than getting stuck in any place or, or viewing anything as kind of negative and a hindrance to what you're doing. I really think you have to be able to have that notion of gratitude, right? Appreciating everything, learning from it and continuing to move forward. So gratitude for the journey. Hey, Patience. Kenza, can you yeah. stay on gratitude? So how do you, what yeah. does gratitude look like for you in your practice and how do you even practice gratitude? Yeah, so, so gratitude for me sometimes just looks like pausing and identifying at least one thing that I am grateful for in this moment. I think it's so easy to get caught up in identifying the stressors, the adversity, the challenge, thinking about the things that are changed or the things that are not the way we want them to be. So sometimes it really is truly taking a moment to stop and asking the question, what am I grateful for right now? No matter how big or small, just identifying what that is. I'm also a very religious and spiritual person. Um, and so I, I read devotionals. I refer to scripture. And sometimes that's my point of gratitude, being grateful that I have that kind of foundation that was instilled in me from my family that I can turn to as a source of strength and support in challenging times. There are other times when I may write a list of the things that I'm grateful for. And I've encouraged clients that I work with to make a gratitude list or to have gratitude moments throughout their day, because I think it has to be something intentional and it has to be something that we're doing on a regular basis. It's not just what am I grateful for and then I never think again, but really taking time to identify all the things big and small um, that you are thankful for in this moment, regardless of what else this moment may be bringing to you. 
And you mentioned spirituality. I think of a tree of life as a very spiritual image. Do you make a distinction around spirituality and religion or are those very much tied together for yourself? So for myself, I identify as Christian and I know that is a religion. Many people identify it that way. But I also feel like for me, the the religious piece of it is more about the relationship that I have in terms of God, that I believe in God and kind of how I play that out in my life. I don't impart that on others. So there are others who may not necessarily be religious, but have some type of belief in a higher power and have spirituality. So even in my identifying as a Christian, what I try to do is make room for what's important for other people. So for me, it's connected. I recognize for others, it may not be. And I do my very best with that piece of of cultural identity and other pieces of cultural identity or aspects of cultural identity to allow room for others in, in how they identify and what's important and salient for them. Is your connection with Christianity the same as it was growing up in your house as a kid or has it evolved? Has it changed? I'd be curious to just learn about your journey uh, in in religion. Yeah, I think it's evolved. I mean, certainly when I was growing up, I I, I sang in the choir. I attended church with my family every week. I, I memorized scripture, right? Like I was really heavily involved in that way. Um, and, and as I, I matured and grew up, like in my college years, I might not have been as active in participating in church or church-related activities. That doesn't mean that my faith wavered, but my engagement may have shifted. And as I've gotten older, um, that core faith and foundation, I think that was instilled in me when I was young is still present. What it looks like today may look different than it looked before, um, but it still is very much rooted in, again, the faith, the principles that were instilled in me in my home church um, in Athens, Georgia, and the, the values that my family also instilled in me with that as well. It's interesting. I get these texts a bunch of mornings, not every morning, but a lot of mornings, from somebody who I came across in the football world. He works for an NFL team and he still texts me scripture um, Mm -hmm. all the time. And I'm Jewish. And so a lot of these scriptures I never studied, didn't look for, but I'm, I'm so amazed by his desire to not just know it, but also share it. And um, I don't always know exactly what to do with them because I don't always have the context, Mm -hmm. but I appreciate his desire to be connected to his faith and actually share what he is committed to. So I, I sometimes will shoot him a text back. Other times I'll just sit with it. Um, I don't yeah. know how I got on his, his list for texting, but, but I, I get him, I get him, I would say maybe two or three times a week. But I also think, you know, if, if we take the, if we potentially take the religious piece out of it, right? Like the, the intention there is maybe designed to give you a note of encouragement of hope, uh, something along those lines. And I think in thinking of it in that way, as you mentioned earlier, both of us really like to talk in analogies, right? And I think people can sometimes embrace a message if it's delivered in a story, right? So in that way, analogies can be very powerful. Another thing that I really use, you can't see it in my background currently, but I have quotes all over my house because I really do sometimes feel like I might not have the words, but there may be a quote that summarizes um, a message that a person that I'm working with needs to hear. So I may not send scripture, right? If, If that's not something that speaks to them, but I certainly am a fan of sending quotes on a regular basis. To those All right. So give us a, give us a favorite quote of yours that's hanging up in the office or the house or, or, you know, what's a quote that you find that you share often with people? Right. So one that I, I just recently shared was about excellence. 
And I'm actually going to look it up specifically so I can make sure I give it to you. It's a quote by Aristotle and many of your listeners may even be familiar with it. Um, but the quote goes a little something like, we are what we repeatedly do. Excellence then is not an act, but a habit. So that's one of the quotes that I often will send to people. There's a poem called Our Deepest Fear. And I will regularly send stanzas of that poem to folks as well, um, because I think what it sometimes speaks to is not our fear of failure, but our fear of success and our fear of the expectations that may come if we in fact give ourselves permission to do what we are capable of doing. And so I'll send that as a reminder to folks as well. And then there's one in my office that's very simple and I've, I've had a lot of clients comment on it, but it just says, trust your dopeness. Um, and I think it's this idea of understanding that we're all unique. Um, we're supposed to be, right? And you have to, be you have to be able to identify what's dope within you and embrace that as opposed to getting caught in the trap of comparing, as opposed to get, getting caught in the trap of perfection, which will result in you looking at what you don't have, like recognizing the dopeness, the talents, the skills, the abilities that you possess and trusting that in your process um, forward, whatever forward may be, like trusting what you have in you, using that, embracing that and owning that I think is really important. So let's talk about perfectionism a little bit because yeah. I've worked with NBA players. You've worked with NBA players. I've worked with NFL players. You've worked with NFL players. Mm -hmm. um, so those are two arenas that I'm familiar with. Every, I think this is true. Every pro athlete in the NFL and NBA that I've worked with in one of our first sessions, we'll say, Brian, I'm a perfectionist. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm sure there are some that are not, but they'll say, hey, yeah. I, I'm a perfectionist. And when you talk about excellence being a habit, I think about the repetition that they have to have and the excellence and the perfectionism. And one of the things I talk about in my book is that perfectionism and preparation allows us to get mastery. It allows us to get the reps and become competent but it also can cripple us when it's game seven of the Eastern conference finals mm -hmm. in the NBA or, or, or a regular Sunday game in the NFL and we need to be adaptable. So really my book talks about the preparation mind and the performance mind mm -hmm. preparation. Perfectionism can actually be helpful, but then can be crippling in the performance and in performance, we need to be adaptable, but if we're adaptable in preparation, we might not, give the time and the process to trying to master something over and over again. And that can hinder us as well. So I'd love for you to, to riff on perfectionism a little bit um, and perfectionistic thoughts and versus being a perfectionist and, and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. So when I think about perfectionism and, and being a perfectionist and what all that kind of means, I, I think about kind of how it shuts a person down. Right. And when we think about that perfectionist mindset, and I'm not separating it in the way that you are in terms of preparation and performance, because I think there's something to that. And, and we can certainly talk more about that. But in general, when I think about the perfectionistic piece, I think about it, it being limiting in terms of it our definition of what success looks like. It does not allow for growth. It has this very, it, it gives this very narrow definition of what's acceptable and what's okay. And anything outside of that is failure, right? And I think th that that is the mindset that can become problematic, right? Because we're only striving for this one particular thing without recognizing that there may be a range of, of paths that we can use to get to whatever the, the outcome is that we're trying to achieve. And it doesn't have to be perfect. Now, sure, 
I am a fan of excellence and promoting excellence at all times across the board. Whatever you do, do it well, right? Um, you know, and 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 do it with intention and do it with the 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 goal in mind of growing and performing and mastering whatever it is that you're doing. But I've seen perfection too many times be debilitating because it it creates this paralysis where people are now afraid to act because they're afraid to mess up. Right. And so I think sometimes if we can help people to shift out of it doesn't have to be perfect. Right. We're trying to achieve mastery. We're trying to achieve success. The way we're going to do that is through repetition. In that repetition, there may be mistakes that we can learn from, disappointments that we can learn from, setbacks that we can learn from and use to fine tune what we're doing in order to move closer to mastery. Right. So I think for me, it's it's the perfectionism is is less about there's only one way to do it and rather let's do it repeatedly, let's fine tune it, figure out what works for you so we can get you to the point of mastery that you need to be able to perform in the way that you want to. And why I was so excited to chat with you is you also are very clear, hey, I work in clinical psychology and in performance psychology. You're trained and you're qualified to do both. I am not. I got my master's in sports psychology. And while that was a, a great program and I learned a ton, my focus has been on performance and I refer oh. out when I see some clinical challenges and I'm fortunate to have an amazing network of, of practitioner, practitioners who I can refer out to. Mm-hmm. I, I'm curious to get your thoughts on, is there a dark side to striving for excellence that that sometimes bleeds over to people's clinical well-being, let's call it. And I don't even know if that's the right phrase, but is there a dark side between sometimes excellence that actually gets in the way of, of well-being? And have you seen that creep up, especially at the professional level? Yeah, I think if it leads to, if the, the, the pursuit of excellence or the pursuit of perfection, right, leads to um, obsession, right, or, or obsessive-like behaviors, or if it leads to like this inability to recognize anything good because it's never good enough, right? Like I think those types of things certainly can create problems in, in more areas in a person's life than just their performance, right? You can think about how eliminating energy and attention to anything in your life other than this one area, right? Could be problematic for your relationships, could be problematic for your identity development. Um, it could create a situation where who you are and, and how you see yourself is so tightly tied to what you do that that can create a real distorted type of identity, right? That you're operating with. And so you only become as good as your most perfect performance, right? And if you never feel like you're good enough, then what does that mean for how you view yourself? I think that can be really problematic. Also, like I said, it can interfere with our ability to connect with other people, to relate to other people. Um, It can interfere with this notion of just kind of balance in our own worlds, right? Like a balanced perspective of, understanding that no one's success journey, I don't care how successful they are and what industry that they're in, no one's success journey um, has been defined in the absence of adversity and challenge, right? Adversity and challenge is a part of all of it. So I think it also, it, it distorts our idea of what it takes to be excellent, right? If we become too obsessed with it, if we, um, don't allow for the ebbs and flows that are a part of life and that help with our 
journey towards excellence and, and rather than thinking of them as hindrances or roadblocks. It's really interesting. I think both of us were basketball players when we were younger. Mm-hmm. And if you ask 12 year old, 10 year old Brian, I'm talking third person now. That's how you sure. know where we got to in this <laughs> podcast. If you ask 10, 10 year old Brian, hey, like, what do you want to be when you grow up? Basketball player. If you ask my five and a half year old son, what does he want to be? Football player or astronaut? And to be frank, I think one of those is more likely to happen than the other. <laughs> but um, I, I've been talking to people about this lately. Um, you know, we're seeing sports coaches retire in the last year. I can't remember these elite coaches, Muffet McGraw, uh, Coach K, Brad Stevens, Rick Carlisle. Um, we're seeing it. Becky Burley, University of Florida soccer coach, uh, who I had on the podcast. We're seeing some of these are, are getting, you know, they're, they're older, but some of them are in their quote unquote prime. Yeah. And we've heard of athletes who are, are expanding what they're intentions are and their curiosity and that they're more than just an athlete. And we're seeing that movement and it's beautiful to watch. And you talk about obsessiveness. I'm curious for you, if you could tell your 12 year old self, Kenza, you can be a professional basketball player and play in the WNBA and go play in Europe. And like I had Candace Parker on the podcast, right? So let's take Candace who's actually way more than a basketball player. She's crushing it on TNT as an analyst and she's not going anywhere when she stops dribbling the basketball. I think we all recognize that, but let's just take Candace, the basketball player, knowing what you know about what it's like to be a professional athlete. Would you tell Kenza to say, let's say she can become Candace Parker or she can become Kenza in the seat that you're sitting in now, which of those paths would you tell her to, to follow and, and you're going to get to either one. So you're either going to become Candace or you're going to become Kenza, which would you rather, rather be following? Oh, that's, that's such an interesting question. I'll be, I'll be honest. The, the first thing that came to my mind, and this is going to derail the topic a little bit. Um, the first thing that came to mind is I would say Kenza pursue being a professional swimmer, because that was my first sport. Uh, that was my first sport. And that was my first love. Katie Ledecky, then. Katie, Katie Ledecky. You can, right. you could be Katie um, Ledecky. And, you know, I don't know if I have an answer to that question. I really don't. And, and I, you know, I'm thinking about, I I think to your question of, we see so many people who are potentially shifting their career paths in their prime, right? Um, What is that about, right? The answer that was coming to my mind was, I think what we are seeing is, is people really valuing the importance of health as a part of what they're doing in their work life, as opposed to thinking that my work life has to exist at the expense of my health, right? And so when you ask that question about would I be a professional athlete, um, whether it's basketball or swimming or would I be in the seat that I am now, I, I am a person who believes that things happen as they should, right? So I, I believe if I were to tell 12 year old Kenza something, that my path would still lead me here because I think things happen as they should. Um, when I think about the potential of being a professional athlete, certainly that sounds amazing for somebody who loved sports and, and who still loves sport, but for somebody who participated in sport in the way that I did, that sounds great. But I, I think that people sometimes see the performance and don't see the sacrifice, right? And so there's a lot of sacrifice that goes along with that. And so, um, not because I don't think that 
I would be able to make the sacrifices required to be a professional athlete. But simply because I think all things happen as they should, I tell 12 year old Kenza, um, just, just trust, trust that your path is going to lead you where you need to go. Right. And, and keep walking. And so I, my hope or my guess is that I probably still end up here. Yeah. I, I think I'm, I'm so curious about this right now because I think we glamorize professional sports and look, mm -hmm. they make a lot of money, no question. And they get to play a sport for a living. You could do a lot worse as a profession. So let's, let's be true to that. And yeah. I think sometimes we forget, you used the word balance earlier. It's very hard for a professional athlete to have balance in their life. There's not a whole lot of autonomy that mm -hmm. exists. They tell you when practices, they tell you when the games are, you have a schedule and there are plenty of jobs that are like this as well. So I, I get that, but we are both business owners and we have a level of autonomy that is different than some of the clients that we serve. And it's just an interesting thing to, to chew on because a, a head coach of a sports team, I mean, I've had so many on this podcast and we talk about, you know, the weight that they carry and how it's 24 seven. And, and before we started recording, we even talked about disassociating from wins and losses in the work that we do and how important that is. The head coaches, a lot of them don't disassociate. Well, it, it's it's very hard for them to right because they are a part of the equation. Right. And so even though the, the, for the coaches, they don't play one minute of one game, but they are a part of the equation. Right. They are seen as the leader who is kind of orchestrating and corralling this ensemble of casts in order to perform. Right. And so there it's easy to see how they take responsibility for what happens or what doesn't happen in whatever field of play we're talking about, whether we're talking about the pool, the court, the field, whatever the case may be. But I think you're right, it's, a, it's an excellent question. One of the things that I started doing um, in the last several months is, you know, one of the things in sports, like we talk about goals a lot, right? In sports psychology, we talk about goal setting. And so one of the questions that I started to ask my athletes is, okay, sure, you can tell me what your goals are, but my question to you is what are you willing to sacrifice? because we are very quick to talk about what it is you want to achieve, talk about what you are willing to give up in order to achieve or in order to, to, to start the path, the pursuit, to pursue what this is that you're trying to accomplish because there is sacrifice attached to all of it. And I think you're absolutely correct. When you talk about the lives of professional athletes and how we glamorize them because of what we see, what we don't see are the hours of training. We don't see the hours of recovery. We don't see the times when they're not able to engage in what we might think of as typical normal behaviors of hanging out with people or spending time with family or even dedicating their lives to something other than their sport in a real significant way because the expectation is that everything will revolve around what it is that they are doing in their sport, right? And certainly they may have an off season, I get it, but even in the off season, there's training. And if I think about athletes like particularly I'll think about the WNBA we think about their WNBA season we don't think about the fact that for many of them most of their their professional careers are spent overseas because they play overseas when they're not playing in the W season we don't think about what it is to go and live abroad in a country where you may not know the language or anyone other than your teammates who may not speak your language and what all that sacrifice entails and so I think again to, to come full circle I think what we are hearing athletes, coaches, those in the sport world demand now in a way that I don't think has ever really been demanded before is for us to, to see their humanity and not just reduce them to performers. And I'm just so curious about what it's going to continue to look like. 
because the leagues are set up. You can trade people, you can cut them. There's a free agency. I mean, this stuff doesn't really exist in other businesses. There's not other businesses as, Hey, Kenza, you know, we're going to trade you for a player to be named later. It's just very transactional and your P patience sports teams tend to lack patience. They fire people all the time in sports. I, I would say of all of the teams that I've worked with professionally and collegiately over the last decade, I don't think any of them are still fully intact over the last decade. Either the head coach or the general manager or the athletic director or the head coach is not still there. If I were to look at uh, my clients in insurance or real estate or nonprofit, like a lot of them are still at it. And so the P, the P for your GPS, the patience piece, mm-hmm. how do you preach patience in a world that seems so transactional? Well, it's the, the patience piece, the, the entire phrase is patience to stay present, mm-hmm. right? And I think that becomes the key point, right? Is the patience to stay in this moment. It can be so easy and so tempting sometimes to think about moments that have passed that we can do nothing about. It can be very tempting to think about moments to come and try to predict what's going to happen next, but we don't have any control in the past or the future, right? Like our control lives in the present moment. So it's that patience to stay present to, in some ways, trust the work that you're putting in, right? Assuming that you're putting in work, but trust what you're doing. And and I, I heard you, like when we think about businesses and the transactional nature, of many businesses. I also think it's really important to just remind folks, businesses are also about relationships, right? And I understand that that may not be what dominates the conversation or what dominates the discussion, particularly when we're talking about sports leagues or whatever the case may be, but make no mistake about it. Whenever we talk about business, we're talking about people. Whenever we're talking about transactions, we're talking about relationships and people and and changes that are happening in terms of personnel going from one place to another. At the end of the day, all of this revolves around people. And so that I think is a really important piece that we moving forward are going to be forced to remember, right? But that patience to stay present piece just is about a person kind of being present with themselves, being present in the moment, controlling what they can and, 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 having the resilience and the skill set to be able to adjust when changes happen, when adversity occurs, because it's not a matter of if change is going to happen, adversity is going to occur. But it's being able to, again, going back to that tree, having roots that ground you in a way that allow you to stay present in this moment, to control what you can and to adjust when you cannot control. So here we are, we're, we're still in a pandemic. Yeah. Uh, cer- certainly things have opened up a bit. Many have been vaccinated. We're fortunate in this country that, you know, if you want a vaccine, you you pretty much can get it. That's not the case all over the world. Mm -hmm. Over the last year and a half, what have you done to make sure that you're, you're patient and present um, given what's going on? And by the way, social justice, I mean, this has been a wild ride here for the last year and a half or so. Um, What have you been doing to make sure that you're well and uh, that you're you're staying present and, and patient as well. Also, an excellent question um, because I'll be the first to share that I am. I feel like I'm pretty good at recommending what others can do to help themselves to stay grounded, and and sometimes it's harder for me to apply my own. The, the knowledge that I have and I share so readily with others, sometimes it's hard to apply that to my own life. But um, to your question, what have I been doing? So certainly when the pandemic hit, like I think it was a shock to the system for everyone, like overnight, literally my business went from being 
being an in-person business to a virtual business. And so I had to make that adjustment. And so I think like many of us, I've, I've kind of made adjustments thinking about the global health pandemic. I've had to make adjustment based on kind of safety and thinking about what can I do? What can I do? What's safe to do? How do I continue to provide services during this time of transition? How do I continue to take care of myself? And so um, it was making adjustments where I could um, in order to still be able to provide service, but also it was making sure that I was still connecting with my family and my friends and my colleagues who are support people. I wasn't able to drive and see my parents, right? Many of us weren't able to just go and connect with our support systems. So I had to be really intentional about staying connected with them. Um, that was a huge part of what I did. And I'll be honest, another thing that, that was helpful, I don't know if it was helpful, but another thing that I did was I kind of dived into my work because more people were seeking mental health support during that particular time. And I'm talking about like last April, May, all through the rest of last year, more people were seeking help. So I felt like me diving into work was my way of trying to help people manage this moment. And that felt like something that I could potentially offer and do. And so that actually was really helpful. I know there are some that will say, you know, well, diving into work, right? Like, is that just avoiding the situation? It's like, no, I was very clear on the situation, but that allowed me to feel like there was something I could do. And in, in, in otherwise, when in other ways I felt kind of helpless, like I couldn't stop the virus right? But maybe I can talk to folks and offer support for them as they're trying to navigate it, right? So that, that's one of the things, or one of the things that I really tried to do. That word control that you brought up, I had a conversation yesterday with a mother who was talking about, you know, they're still scared for their kids. Their kids aren't vaccinated yet. They're young. And so she's still, if she's able to control that environment, then she will. And so what does that mean? Yeah. Her kids are not going to go to summer camp maybe, or they're not going to be in school or they're going to be remote. And I think about the analogy of getting on an airplane and we all feel like we have control driving our car to the airport, but a lot of people have a hard time getting on an airplane because they're afraid and because mm -hmm. they don't control the flight. And the stats and the research are very clear on this, that you're much more in danger on your ride to the airport than you are when you're actually on the airplane. But that idea of control, mm -hmm. and I'd love to riff on that with you, uh, because obviously people use the phrase control what you can control a lot in our industry. Yep. How do you think about control as something that's helpful and, and maybe something that also could get in the way for us as performers? Yeah, I think one of the things that this past year and a half has taught us is that we probably control less than we actually think we do. <laughs> and so, um, but, but, and, and, and let me, let me add a disclaimer to that. We control less than we actually think we control in our external world, right? That's, we, we don't control a lot there, right? But we do control our, our internal world and we control kind of what's in our sphere of influence. So thinking about how I can control myself, right? Like how my perspective influences how I think about a situation, how I may behave in a situation, how I might engage in certain coping or not in a situation, right? I think we have to be really a bit more clear about what it is that I control and just be okay with that's not a lot. And there's a lot that I don't control, right? And that's the piece that I think really we need to do a little bit of work around is understanding and being okay with the pieces that we don't control. And, and when you can't control something, understanding that your next task is then to adjust, right? 
and to think about how we can be flexible and how we can meet the moment, whatever that moment may be and respond to that moment. I don't have to control a moment in order to be able to respond to it, right? But I have to be aware of and accept what the moment is, right? So I think beyond control is this idea of accepting what's in front of me, right? First, being aware of what's in front of me, accepting what's in front of me, understanding that I control how I show up in this situation. And even if I can't control the situation, I can control how I respond to it, right? Whether that means I engage, I don't engage, if I engage a lot or not, whatever the case may be. And so I think that ability to trust, trusting my ability to adjust when I don't have the capacity to control, I think becomes, it feels like semantics, but it really can shift the way we approach situations. No, that was beautiful. The internal and external vision there that I was able to see as you were talking really spoke to me. And I think the mistake that some of us make is believing that that external world, that we control everything around it or trying to enforcing that. And that can be debilitating um, for many of us, whereas that internal relationship you have with yourself and the dialogue we have with ourselves can be really profound. And then there's, there's the agility piece that you're bringing up mm-hmm. where I created this formula. It's, it's not, nothing too complicated, but it's grit plus agility times growth, mi- growth mindset equals resilience. Mm-hmm. And we often talk about being resilient to me, the grit of Angela Duckworth, you know, passion and perseverance for long-term goals. Great. But if you're just going to try to grit through COVID, good luck. Like that, this is going to be a, a long haul for you. Mm-hmm. That we need to have agility. We need to have flexibility. We need to acknowledge, hey, maybe I don't need to just persevere. Maybe I need to rest. Maybe I need to, to do something differently. You talked about right. going remote with your clients. Like you have to pivot, adjust. And then if you multiply it by the growth mindset, by Carol Dweck, you know, we mm-hmm. all stand on brilliant people like Duckworth and, and sure. Dweck um, and, and her work about this idea that we're all growing and learning and developing and we're not there yet. If you can have passion and perseverance, you can add in this agility piece and then you can multiply the growth mindset. That's where I think we become resilient. So I, I've been talking a lot. So I'd be curious to get your thoughts on all that. Yeah. And I, you know, I'd add just two pieces to that is this notion of compassion and grace. Right. Because I think it goes back to the, an earlier part of the conversation that we, when we were talking about perfection. I think sometimes we even think we're supposed to be able to cope and be resilient in a perfect way. Right. Like there's a certain way that that I'm supposed to be resilient in this situation. It should look like a certain thing. And so I think that's where compassion and grace come into play. Understanding, again, you have to have compassion towards yourself and just be able to demonstrate a level of kindness to yourself that again, you might readily extend to someone else, but you would hold yourself to a more strict, rigid standard that doesn't allow for um, the space to not be perfect, right? And we just sometimes need that space. I think, you, you know, thinking about the pandemic, um, early on in the pandemic, I, I saw these memes and these, these statements where people would say, you should emerge from the pandemic with your next book, your next podcast, your next business venture. And if you don't emerge from the pandemic with all of these different endeavors, then you never lacked passion, you lacked discipline. And I was like, what? Like, we are quite literally trying to survive a global pandemic. And we are promoting these messages that we should come out of this thriving more than we ever have before. Like that is ludicrous to me, but, but, but it reflects, I think 
this hustle and grind and produce, produce, produce culture that has become such the norm, this comparison culture also, that really I think gets in the way of us being able to even um, identify what perseverance looks like for me or what grit looks like for me, right? To even know what resilience looks like for me because I think I'm supposed to do it like everybody else is doing it. So I think we have to, to really challenge that notion of comparison in this whole process, in addition to extending the compassion and grace to ourselves um, that we would readily extend to others. What I often will tell people is ask yourself what you would say to a friend or a loved one in your similar situation and say that to yourself, because we would offer kindness, encouragement, support to others in ways that we rarely do to ourselves. And we really need to be more intentional about being kind ourselves, particularly when we're navigating pandemics you know, the, the health pandemic, the racism pandemic, um, the mental health challenge that this, this last year and a half has presented to all of us. We're trying to navigate all of that. We, we could use a little bit of grace. Yeah, and even as you sort of unloaded that, you almost dropped your hands and, and just sort of, ah, <laughs> like yeah. sigh there. So you mentioned that you try to practice what you preach and sometimes that's difficult to do. What were you struggling with over the last year and a half? I was struggling with the social justice issues and the racialized violence that we were seeing. I mean, certainly when we think of, you know, navigating the challenges that came along with the health pandemic, right? Life as we know it changing, having to adjust, dealing with the immense amount of loss, right? Not just the loss of our way of life, but the loss of life, right? There was one point where I know you look on the TV and you could see the counter of how many people were infected, how many people had lost their lives, not only in the States, but worldwide. And I think there was a time where we, we kind of forgot that those numbers represented people. There's a lot of grief and loss, that has been sustained and people are still processing as a result of this pandemic. Um, the idea that we all had to stop and the things that we, we might've normally done, our normal routines were disrupted. We had to adjust to that. Um, but for me, I think truly in the spring when we had um, just the repeated incidents of racialized violence, um, if we, can, we are thinking about Ahmaud Aubrey, which happened here in my home state of Georgia, we're thinking about Breonna Taylor and, and the killing that happened uh, there and, and just kind of witnessing that process unfold. Of course, George Floyd, whom um, if you watch the video, you kind of saw what we now know to be nine minutes and 29 seconds of someone losing their life, right? All of that was very difficult to process and hold and wrap my brain around, um, not just because of those situations, but because these situations are not new. Right. And these moments were highlighted, I think, because we were in such a shut down kind of state globally and, and for the country, like our movement was decreased. These things were happening and we kind of were forced into seeing them and, and on social media and on news. And so everybody was paying attention in a way that I don't know if we always pay attention. But these situations were not new. And so to have the repeated situations where people who look like you. Um, people who remind you of family members or loved ones because of the similarity in your racial identity, because of the similarity in your gender identity, the intersections that go along with that, and just trying to make sense of um, how, how, how to go about trying to create a world where your is not a threat and you're allowed an opportunity just to live and thrive in the way that others are allowed the opportunity to live and thrive just wanting to be able to, to be seen as human 
and to be able to have your dignity, your value and your worth respected in all ways and to continuously see images on the screen that deliver messages that are counter to that idea. That was extremely difficult. And I, I can't say that I had or even have a good way of processing that that reality still exists for many people in this country. I have friends that I talk to, family members that I talk to, um, but that can be difficult um, to, to see um, and witness the trauma of those experiences. Because as we know, you know, you don't have to directly experience something for it to be traumatic for you. You can witness something and it, it create kind of a traumatic reaction. And just to see um, people in the black community, which is the community that I identify with, losing their lives and, and crying out, yelling for justice um, in ways that we've yelled for it before and, and still kind of in that fight yelling and not seeing a whole lot of change, that's hard. That's still hard. How does that make you feel? Um, heavy. I won't say hopeless because I try to be a person who holds on to hope, um, even in the face of, of limited um, hope. But I, I, I have to maintain a sense of hope that we can become, we can become something better than what we are right? That we can become um, a place where um, the dignity, value, and worth of all people is respected and, that, and a place where there is equity, regardless of your cultural identities. Again, whether I'm talking about race, gender, age, sexual identity, gender identity, um, whether I'm talking about ability status, um, nationality, language, like a place where um, truly those things are recognized and respected because we need to recognize and respect the values. Cultural blindness is not the goal, but where um, we can allow room for them and still have opportunities that are somewhat equitable and equal for everyone, right? Because I don't know if we have that right now. The word safety and security, some version of that has come up a lot in just our, our brief time together. And I think about psychological safety and how much people are talking about it after Google did this research and found that psychologically safe teams are the most high performing teams. And that actually psychological safety is core to high functioning teams. Mm -hmm. And it's not, it's not lost on me that one of the privileges I've had in my life is that I think I've felt pretty safe in most environments. Um, and I actually minored in African-American studies in college. And it was one of the times where I was hesitant to raise my hand. And I majored in sociology where I was one of the few heterosexual white men in my mm -hmm. classes. And I felt what it's like to not feel safe. The difference for me was those were hour long experiences. And then I'd leave the class and did not feel not secure in pretty much my interactions with the world. Mm -hmm. I'd love to dive into safety with you and security. And, and we can think about safety and security as, it, as we think about it from a race standpoint. We can think about it from a gender standpoint. We can think about it from a team standpoint. I just think it's such an interesting value that those that often feel safe don't think about how they can create environments for others to feel safe because they have it. 
Mm-hmm. And so if we have something, we don't always create the space for somebody else because we just assume that they feel that way and, and they often don't. So yeah. I'd love for you to just riff on, on safety, security, how you think about it in a team setting, as you think about our society, I know systematically, like what can we do to try to create psychological safety for people? Yeah. Um, the first word that came to mind was listen, right? We can listen. And when, when people share their stories or when people express what they need or express their experience, we can listen and, and try to understand as opposed to listening to challenge or listening to discredit what they're saying, right? This notion that, well, that wasn't my experience means nothing when it comes to the experience of another person. Because whereas you are, in fact, the expert in your experience, you are not the expert in anyone else's experience. And just because you haven't had the experience does not mean that it's not an experience that others have not had, right? Multiple truths can coexist at the same time. So this idea of listening and with that, this idea of having a level of humility, right? And specifically, I can talk about cultural humility. Um, the, the notion, um, there was a study that came out in 2013 that talks about this concept in a lot of detail, but the notion of cultural humility basically being one where we need to approach others who are culturally different than us with a level of openness, right? With this, this continued lifelong learner type mentality that has us understanding you can never fully appreciate and understand what somebody else has lived and gone through, but you can do your best to try to understand um, have empathy if that's if that's what the situation calls for, but allow room for their experience in the same way that you want room to be allowed for yours, to not have one cultural identity be viewed as superior to another, but understanding again that you're the expert in your experience, I'm the expert in mine, we have to allow room for both. And I'll, I'll also tie this back to an earlier answer. When you asked me whether I would be in the position that I am now, or would I be a professional basketball player? And I said, um, I probably would have been a professional swimmer. So I, I started swimming competitively when I was eight, nine years old. Um, and I stopped when I was 13. So for a large part of my swimming experience, um, I was the only black person on my team, right? It was a city swim team. There were four teams in the city. I was on one of those teams. Um, I was the only black person for a significant amount of time. And then there was later in my my time on the team, a black male joined the team as well. But as you talk about safety and security, um, I didn't stop swimming because I fell out of love with swimming. I stopped swimming because I was tired of being the only one in these situations and settings. Um, As a 13 year old girl, I loved swimming. I did not love looking around and not seeing people that looked like me. And so at that point, when I transitioned from eighth grade to high school, I transitioned from swimming to basketball. And I didn't really think about it a lot at the time. Like I didn't think in depth about it, but what I realized was I wanna be around my friends. I wanna be around people who look like me. I don't want to have to feel like I am both competing in the water and competing to be accepted in this space. Don't wanna feel like I'm competing to belong on my team while I'm competing for this team when I'm in the water. And so I remember just really wanting a situation where, again, I could look around and see people who look like me and my team environment and and see what that felt like um, because I burned out of being the only. There's There's a psychological and an emotional weight that can come with being 
the only in different situations, whether we're talking about the only in classroom settings, the only in social settings, the only in work settings, the only in sports settings. For me, it was the only black female in that setting. Um, but I imagine that many of your listeners, if, if they have been the only in certain situations can understand what that unspoken toll and weight may feel like. And as a 13 year old girl, I decided I didn't want to do that. I wanted to go to a place that felt psychologically safer. And so I went to basketball. So as you're telling that story, I feel chills. I feel sadness. And I also am reflecting about when I've felt like I'm the only, and I mentioned privilege earlier. I certainly have lived with a lot of privileges for a lot of different reasons, but I've felt what it's like to have been the only at, at times in in my life. Um, I think it's actually a pretty universal experience. Mm -hmm. And what I have, I'm almost thinking in my head is like, what would it look like for all of us to extend grace to the people that feel as if they are the only? And, and, I, and I say, and I said it the way I said it very intentionally, because you're correct, the only could extend to a number of different identities, right? And so that experience, I think you're correct, is in many ways, a universal kind of experience of what it's like to be the only one who you feel is representing whatever identities or intersection of identities we're talking about, but just what it feels like to carry that, right? And I think that's, that's something that I don't know if we talk about it a lot. Um, I definitely don't know if we talk about it in the world of sport. I have had some conversations about it as it pertains to sport um, this past year, but I think that's a, an interesting conversation for us to think through as well. Mm. And then if we're going to talk about that, let's go to sports psychology. So you're the president of the Association of Applied Sports Psychology, which is an accomplishment in its own right. But I believe you're also the first Black president of the association. And in doing some research for this, there was a time where you felt like an only in our field and in our industry. And look, I think I've had on sports psychology professionals, I'd probably have to look back and research how many sports psych professionals or people of color that I've had on. I don't know. I have to think about it. I will tell you that I, to start this year, looked back and saw how many women I'd interviewed and I wasn't I'm not going to say happy. I would say proud. I wasn't proud of the, the ratio there. Mm -hmm. And so I've been more intentional about reaching out to women and, and trying yeah. to give them a megaphone. And I'm not someone special. It's just like you take a pause and you look back and you're like, wait a second, like we can do better here mm -hmm. for you. What's it been like in the world of sports psychology? And look, we mentioned football and basketball, tons of African-Americans in, in basketball and football. Um, but we have these conversations in front offices, head coaches, sports psychology is no different. What's it like for you navigating your career? Um, did you feel as an only early and, and what's that been like for you? Yeah. So I was going to say, I, I never felt like an only because there were always a few people around. And so I, I have to give a shout out to um, Dr. Wendy Bollaby, um, and Dr. Ross Flowers, who were two of the first um, people that I kind of came in contact with in the field who also identified as Black. Um, Wendy and I went to grad school together, and, and Ross ultimately became my supervisor when I was on internship and postdoc. But um, I didn't feel like the only, but I certainly felt like one of few. 
Um, and I think that 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 feeling was reflected in the field. I think if we think about the field in its early days, the field of sports psychology, um, it was it was primarily um, it primarily consisted of white men, right? And certainly there were white females as well. And and I recall going to some of the early conferences back in the early two thousands, and I, I remember asking, kind of wondering. Uh, about the the demographics of the professionals knowing the demographics of sport we talk about sport as such a cultural mosaic right where there is just the a range of diversity in a number of different ways and I didn't necessarily see that reflected in the professionals that were at the conference now granted the professionals that are at the conference are the ones who can afford to be at the conference they're usually the ones that are presenting so that's a self-selected group in and of itself, right? But again, as a, an incoming and up and coming grad student, this is the image that I saw. And so um, have definitely felt like one of few. I'm glad at this point to feel like one of more, right? And, and I think that we are um, aware that we can do a better job at um, highlighting the professionals that are in the field that represent cultural diversity on a number of different ways. We still have work to do in that area, but I will say that what I see now is, is a, a wider range of diversity than what I recall seeing when I first entered the field. And so, and this is in terms of gender, sexual identity, race, language, nationality, right? Because sports psychology is also an international discipline, right? And not just thinking about what's happening in the States, but also trying to broaden that lens to think globally about sports psych. So um, I, I am the, the first black president of ASP and I do take that as a major accomplishment because it's an elected position, right? That means that there were colleagues somewhere who felt like I was capable of being in the position, but I also think it's tremendous. And, and this is not just me thinking this, but I have received messages over the last two years that have confirmed from students and professionals alike, just what it is how it expands your idea of what's possible for you when you see somebody who looks like you in a position where you've never seen them before, right? And so I, I think about that as a responsibility of being in this role. Um, I think about that as a privilege of being in this role. And I don't take any of that lightly because I think the representation piece, we hear this phrase, representation matters. It's more than just a phrase. I think it really is important because again, I repeat, when you see people in positions um, where you not have not historically seen people that, that look like you in those positions and you see people that look like you in those positions, it truly does expand what you feel like might be capable or possible for yourself. And that hope um, and instilling that kind of spark in someone, that is priceless. And you don't necessarily get that in an academic program. You don't necessarily get that from reading a book. Um, that's a part of the 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 human element of what we do and the human element of all of these fields and professions that we have that I really think we have to, to really be mindful of, right? That's just a powerful thing. And I think it's important. Well, thank you. You're, you're a better person than me. I mean, I to volunteer your time and, and to go toward that when you've got all the other stuff going on to help our field to help others. It speaks to why you do what you do. So thank you. I have a five o'clock call with someone today and I get these emails a lot. I'm sure you do too. Hey, I'm interested in sports psychology or yes. think today is the brother-in-law of a friend. It, you know, I get them all the time. And I actually started to just carve out once a week, 
a time slot for it because mm-hmm. it can it can really just carve into your your day if you're constantly making time for people carve into your week so sure. I, i've started to just block off time and say hey this is my time slot would love to chat with you and if it's six weeks from now it's six weeks from now mm-hmm. but i'm curious for that person i actually think you're more equipped to answer this question than I am. Uh, what advice would you give this person that I'm going to talk to at five o'clock today if they're interested in breaking into the field of sports psychology and they're just getting started? What sort of advice would you give to that person? First thing I would say is be patient <laughs> um, because uh, this is a field. It is an academic field, meaning that you have to learn skills, theories, principles, foundations before you can just do the work. Um, I know there are a lot of people who hear the phrase psychology and think, oh, you just talk to people or they hear the phrase sports psychology and they're like, oh, you just talk to people about sport. Right. And so it's like, no, I think you just have to be patient. Like there's a process that comes with developing the competence and the, the knowledge base necessary to do this work. The bigger thing that I would say is do good work. And for me, do good work includes three things. The first thing that it includes is to piggyback on what I just said, uh, learn the basics, establish your foundation, take the necessary courses, get the necessary training, get the necessary experience to understand the theoretical principles, the research that underlie the work and the skills and the interventions that we do. That is important. I think you need to have um, that knowledge base to, to support Um, and further fuel the work that we do, right? Because we're not just talking to people. So that's the first thing, get to establish a solid foundation um, with good training and experience. The second thing is, yes, we work in the world of sport, but never forget that we work with people. So in doing good work, establish your knowledge base, never forget that we work with people. We are in a people helping profession. And so again, I know that there can be a lot of people who are enamored with the world of sport. And I love sport. I could care less if you love sport. I want to know if you are willing, open, wanting to help the people who are participating in sport or performance, because that's who we work with. And so never, never, never forget we work with people. And as such, we need to respect them as people while we are helping them as performers. And then the last thing is always do your best, whether you're doing something for class, whether you're doing something Um, out in the field, whether you are getting paid, whether it is complimentary, whatever it is, do good work. Always do your best because um, the work that you do becomes your imprint. And your imprint is your unique signature. And that unique signature will travel further than, than your resume and the words can say, because opportunities that have come my way, um, that I have been shocked that have come my way, have come my way because somebody knew somebody heard of an opportunity and mentioned my name in a room that I didn't even know existed. There have been several opportunities that have come to me that way. So again, always do your best because that's your imprint. So be patient and do good work. And do good work means establish a solid foundation. Always remember that we are working with people and trying to help improve their performance and always do your best because that's your imprint. The imprint and the uniqueness, I want to tie back to being an only. Because as you were telling your story and your journey, I was feeling for you. I told you I could feel it. And a lot of what I was feeling was like sadness and sorrow. And I wasn't tapping into, well, there's also a gift in being an only if you choose to look at it a certain way. Um, And there could be an imprint that you can make by being an only. And a lot of athletes, 
I've interviewed players at the NBA combine. And one of the favorite questions that teams love to ask is like, what players do you look up to and who do you pattern your game after? And mm -hmm. a lot of them will say myself, like I am my only person, like I'm me. And I think those that are comfortable with being an only and the uniqueness that they have and their willingness to stand out and fit in and know when they're called to stand out and mm -hmm. when they're called to fit in. I think that that onlyness or that uniqueness can also be a gift. Um, so can you talk about maybe some of the gifts that also exist with being unique or being an only, and I'm not suggesting that you want to be the only, but perhaps there's some, some benefits to going through that process and, and figuring out who you are. Yeah, well. I mean, I think we all have a unique um, flair that we bring to whatever situation we're a part of, right? And I think that's a part of what the uh, the gift of the only or the gift of whatever your uniqueness is can come into play. Um, certainly, as you said, I've had the opportunity to work in, in NBA and NFL spaces, and a lot of those spaces are very male-dominated, right? And so when I think about my role to come in and kind of work in the, the realm of the mind, right, to try to talk to people and get them to talk to me about you know, things that are that are going well, but also things that may be challenging. I do think that being a female in some ways and, and being one of the few females, if not the only female that's in that space has at times been a gift because for some of the athletes that I worked with, and this is things that they have told me, like I may remind them of a big sister or an aunt figure or some female figure who was a positive force in their lives. And so it's a bit easier for them to even contemplate of sitting with me and talking to me about something that's challenging in a way that they may never think about sitting and talking to a coach or a male figure about that, right? And so I think that's one of the ways that always comes up for me as an instance where um, a part of my unique identity and being one of few or one of the onlys in a particular space has been helpful and has been kind of, um, I've been able to use that to my benefit in, in the work that I've been able to do. But I also wanna say that sometimes, you know, um, you mentioned that if, if you can be comfortable in that space of being the only, right, that sometimes it can, you, you can then tap into some of the strengths and the gifts of that position um, more, though, more so than if you're resisting that space. But I also just want to say that the comfort, sometimes you can be comfortable in that role because at this point, I'm, I'm comfortable if I'm the only in a situation, but comfort doesn't necessarily remove the emotional toll that can still go along with being, and I know you're aware of that, right? So, so certainly being the only and embracing those as kind of your superpowers can be helpful, but also just understanding that self-care and taking care of yourself if you find yourself in those situations is also important because there still may be a toll that you're carrying, even if you're comfortable in that space. As I study your journey, one of the things that struck me is that you didn't necessarily set out and have a vision or a goal to say, hey, I'm going to work in private practice. I'm going to hang my shingle and I'm going to do all this work. I did. I, I like I there's no question for me. I'm the son of an entrepreneur. One of the things that excited me about sports psychology beyond working in sport and helping people was also the possibilities that I thought existed. And I had already worked for other people and I wasn't all that interested in having a boss. And so when I finished my grad program, I hit the ground running. Like I, I didn't walk at graduation. I, I moved to San Francisco to go through that program. Like me and my girlfriend at the time, now my wife, we moved back, I think 
like the day that we could. And I made sure that I graduated and right. I was, I was working with athletes right away. Mm -hmm. Um, and I knew like, I'm going to build this thing. It's going to take time, but you know, I, I think because I, I saw you, you mentioned like when you see someone like you do mm -hmm. things, it, it, it impacts you. And I saw somebody build a business. And so that's just normal for me. And so I wasn't daunting and we're, we're going to talk about dauntless because I think that's an interesting word that you use, but being in business for you, what is different about it than maybe you envisioned what has been helpful? What's been negative, like being an entrepreneur, being in business for yourself. What, what's that been like for you? I never set out to be in business for myself. So all of this was brand new to me. My goal was to work at a college counseling center and kind of be there for 30 or 35 years, whatever the traditional trajectory was to kind of retire with my certificate, my pen, whatever they give you after you've been there for so many years. And, and for that to be that, I never envisioned um, being in private practice. I never envisioned working in any kind of consultation capacities with teams at, at any level. So all of this was brand new to me. Um, and just for your listeners sake, I didn't decide one day, you know what? I think I'm gonna leave the world of college counseling and go to private practice. I was fired. There was a reduction in force. There were budget cuts and they let all of us go in the counseling center. So we all found ourselves having to figure out the next part of our path. That's what propelled me into private practice. A reduction of force, being let go by my job and needing to figure out what was next. And so. Um, at the time, I thought of myself as being a huge failure for being a part of a reduction in force, right? Again, going back to kind of how we think about things and me being a recovering perfectionist, that certainly was the way in which I framed that until I realized that a situation not working out the way I want it to is not e equal to me being a failure. It just means the situation didn't work out the way I thought it was going to work out. And so now what am I going to do? Back to that pivot piece, right? And um, I had an opportunity to go into private practice and that's what I did. And so I think everything about private practice has been different because I never had any vision of what it would be. Um, I would say the biggest difference is the flexibility of being able to kind of create my own schedule and the variety of work that I'm able to do. So I st certainly still see individual clients. I do presentations and workshops. I work with teams. Um, I serve as a consultant for different organizations and companies, and I never envisioned being able to do all of that as a clinical and sports psychologist, but I absolutely love it. Um, I, I, I'm still learning how to be a businesswoman because I didn't have any classes about business. I didn't have anybody to talk to me about the business side of it. So that part, I would say, is still a growth edge, right? Just trying to be a businesswoman. And I was resistant to that for a while. I was like, yeah, I want to be the best therapist and consultant I can be. Uh, businesswoman, not so much until I realized, but you have a business. <laughs> so if you want to be successful, you're going to have to embrace the identity of being a businesswoman. And being a businesswoman is not antithetical to trying to help people, right? I had to also reconcile those two things. I'm a helper. I'm also in business, right? So I had to come to terms with those two parts of, of my identity and what they both mean in my business. And so I feel like I've reconciled them pretty well, but that's, that's kind of where I am. I'm still, still learning on that business side, but really enjoying the variety and the flexibility that comes with being an entrepreneur. It's so interesting. My dad used to tell me, do well and do good. 
And in his mind, I think doing well would allow him to do a whole lot of good. And it's interesting because I was always the do-gooder of my family and my friends. When I graduated college, I told you what I majored and minored. Uh, there was also a political science minor in there. And look, sociology, African-American studies, political science, like there's not a lot of people knocking on your door saying, hey, sure. we're going to go hire you. Right. You know what? Actually, today there would be a lot more given right. of our society. But in 2006, there wasn't. Um, and for me, I wanted to do Teach for America. And I applied. I did the interview process and I got rejected. Like, nope, mm-hmm. not on a wait list, not deferred. Nope, we're not interested. No, nothing. And that led me down to doing some sales and you know, working in sales, I got to a point with the company where they were going in a different direction, laid off, fired, whatever you want to call it. Yep. Uh, yep. You're out. And, and so I was like, all right, I guess I'm going to get, go pursue this sports psychology thing now. Mm-hmm. And so I think we often don't talk about the layoff, the firing, the mm-hmm. rejection. And if you look underneath it, there often is an opportunity there and there's lessons. So sales yeah. for me going through that, I worked in sales for three, three and a half years. And I am much more comfortable selling my work today Mm -hmm. as a result of knocking Mm -hmm. on doors and making calls and uh, getting rejected over and over again. And and that built a skill inside me. Uh, And then the entrepreneurship that you talked about, I find that people that get into psychology mainly get into it because they want to help people. I mean, Mm -hmm. you're not going to Wall Street. You're not like there are uh, there are industries that and and by the way, nothing against people that choose those industries, but there are industries that give you more potential to earn more money. Sure. And psychology would not be the one seed for going to make a ton of money. Now, yeah. I always say what you said is like, if you want to be in private practice, you better figure out how to get people to pay you for your services. Because if you don't, you're not going to be in private practice very long. And it's just the right. reality of our, our, our situation in our system for you, your, your transition was counseling center. Then you were part of a private practice yes. that you joined. So for yes. you, it wasn't like a clean, all right, now I'm just going to start my own thing. No. You joined a, a group a and practice. Mm-hmm. And so going from the group practice to then creating GPS, mm-hmm. what was that transition like for you? And what went into that decision to then say, all right, now I'm really ripping the bandaid off and, and going off on my own. Yeah, it was just this, this increased level of comfort with what it was to be in private practice and recognizing that it wasn't this huge monster that I had made it up to be in my mind, but like it was something that I could actually do. And so in transitioning from the group practice, I wanted to be in a different location. Like the location where I was was okay, but it wasn't really centrally located in, in Metro Atlanta. And I wanted to be in a more central location. Um, I had a colleague who was, was looking for someone to rent office space and it was in the area that I wanted to be in. It was a colleague that I had previously worked with. And when I reached out, she just simply said, if you want the office, it's yours. So it didn't take a lot for me to kind of find a space. Um, and and, And this really speaks to the S in GPS. So the G is gratitude, the P is patience, the S is strength, and it's strength to grow. I really felt like, look, I know what it's like to be in a comfort zone and to have the rug ripped out from under you. So let me try to push myself beyond what I feel is comfortable and and see what that feels like, right? It's this idea of um, wanting to, to spread my branches, wanting to grow more branches back to the tree, right? Feeling like I had good roots, um, 
but wanting to grow and to do so that meant I had to spread beyond the comfort zone where I was. And so I remember having a conversation with then owner of the group practice and she was not surprised at all that I was interested in, in transitioning to my own spot was actually very supportive. And so at that point, I felt like I had more security in myself and my professional identity, more confidence in being able to sustain a private practice. And so it felt like a natural transition as opposed to a forced one once I made the shift from the group practice to having my own practice. There's that word security and you bet I had more. And Mm -hmm. so I think for people to be aware of when I don't have security Mm -hmm. and what are the things that I need to do to create that. And then on the flip side, for other people that are in leadership positions, how can you create an ecosystem, an environment, an organization, a team, whatever it might be, that does provide security while still understanding that there are transactional natures that occur in business as well. And, um, you know, that exists as well. Yeah, I think that's, I go back to listening, but I also go back to communicating, right? Like I think communicate, like clear, honest communication can really, um, how do I want to say it? It can really kind of curtail some of the unnecessary stress that can come up in transactions, right? Because if you are clear and honest and direct and I understand where you're coming from and and maybe I understand some of the why, maybe not all of the why, I get you might not be able to explain all that. But if I feel like I have an understanding of where I am, where I'm going and how I'm going to get from here to there, that makes me feel a bit more secure. Now that doesn't mean I'm 100% comfortable. And I always say more because even though I've been in practice now since in my own practice since 2015, I'm not going to say I feel 100% settled, right? Like anything could happen at any moment, right? Like C2020 for evidence of that. But I do think it is trusting the knowledge that I have, trusting the experiences that I've had, trusting the support that I have, trusting the resources that I have available to me. And in situations where I'm working with people, communicating honestly, openly, clearly, directly to make sure that we're all on the same page and that we can all move forward. We don't all have to agree, but if we all can understand, we can all still move forward together. Kenza, you're more qualified to answer this than me. I get asked this question all the time. Like, what do you think the future of sports psychology is? So I'm curious for you, if you see the field 10 years down the road and you can even answer for yourself, where do you see yourself in 10 years? So where do you see the field going and where do you see yourself going? Um, I think, I think the field It's interesting because I think the movement in the field is, is, um, more predicated by what those that we serve are demanding from us. Right. So if I think about the field right now in sports psychology, that historically it's been focused on performance, right. And, and providing support as it relates to performance spaces, sport performance, but that performance has extended, right? We know that the military employs a lot of um, certified mental performance consultants. We know that um, some companies and corporations use executive coaches who are trained in sports psychology to provide certain services. And so our, our primary area has been one of performance. With the number of performers, coaches, athletes, performers in other spaces who are talking more about the, the health piece of their experience, Um, I think we have to think about the continuum that we work on within the field of sports psychology to include performance, but I don't think it can exclude health and well-being. I am not saying at all 
that those who are trained to be mental performance consultants need to be also trained in mental health. I understand and see them as two separate disciplines, the discipline of mental health, the discipline of mental performance. And certainly um, they are complementary in some ways, but they certainly are separate. And so my hope is that we could create a situation where the general public understands the benefit of having someone trained in mental health, someone trained in mental performance, understand them as related disciplines, but separate. But I do think that in the overall field, we can no longer ignore the human and the person of the athlete. So I think that we'll just continue to kind of expand as the market and the people we serve are calling for us to expand. You said it earlier, we work with people. And I unfortunately have had clients with suicidal thoughts and I've had clients who have issues in their marriage. I have clients Mm -hmm. who are dealing with depression. I've heard just about everything. And for us who are on the performance side, we have to be on the front lines there to then say, hey, like I know this great practitioner that I think could really help. And here's the information. And I'm glad, I'm happy to make an intro and, and to facilitate that dialogue. It's not all that different on the physical side, 15 years ago, there was an athletic trainer and that athletic Mm -hmm. trainer was, you know, wrapping up ankles and doing all this stuff. Now they have Mm -hmm. an orthopedic surgeon, they have a doc, they have the strength conditioning coach, a dentist, (laughs) nutritionist. Like we have all of these experts. And I'm curious for you, as you, as you sit in both those spaces, Mm -hmm. um, where do you find that you spend most of your time? Where do you find most of your energy? Um, and, and by the way, I realized we also didn't answer where you see yourself. Yep. So that was the field. So if you want to answer yourself first and then maybe where you are today and, and where you spend most of your time. Yeah. So, so just to finish up the, the piece about kind of where I see the field and professionals in general, like I see us as being bridges. I see us as being bridges to help people get to the assistance that they need, right? Whatever that may look like. And so that's really what I think about in terms of the field of sports, like that um, we can be bridges in terms of myself and where I see myself. I don't know exactly what title or what role or what space I see myself working in. I I still see myself in the the realm of, I still see myself at the intersection of sport, culture, mental health, and mental performance. What that looks like and where that may rest, I have no idea. Um, But I certainly see myself still working at that intersection um, and very intentionally working at that intersection because I enjoy that work. And um, again, it's an honor and a privilege to get to work with people. And so I really do appreciate having the opportunity to to be able to work in those spaces and to help people navigate. Because the, the other thing about GPS is it is gratitude, patience and strength, but the GPS in and of itself also speaks to navigation. So I like helping people just as much as I can to help them navigate through their lives. So that's what I hope to be doing 10 years from now. Yeah, I love, I love the word coach. The origins of the word coach comes from coaches hungry. And that's where the carriage or the horse and buggy or the coach was invented. And you think about it, it's all about navigation. If you're in a, a coach, it's all right, where am I and where do I want to go? And mm-hmm. so the GPS analogy and the acronym speaks to me. So I love it. All right. Last question for me. Yes. What do you, in, what do you intentionally do daily, monthly, weekly, annually to be your best? And are there any habits? You mentioned habits at the beginning of this conversation. Is there anything you do regularly to make sure that you're sharp and make sure you're able to serve the people that you work with? I try to read a great deal. 
Um, I try to read a lot and I try to read a lot of different things. The Four Agreements is a book that I try to reread at least once a year, if not in, in full, then at least pieces of it. Um, I, um, the Ruthless Elimination of Hurry is a book that I recently read um, that was interesting in terms of thinking about um, how slowing down can help us to be more productive. So I definitely try to read a lot. I try to listen to podcasts. I try to listen to webinars. Like I try to consume information, right? Like I try to take in a lot of information because I, I am very clear. I don't know it all and I'm not trying to. And I'm also clear that things are always changing. So I feel like I need to be constantly um, receiving information um, and taking in information to just kind of help shape my thoughts and help to give me a different perspective than one that I may currently hold. Um, another thing that I am, I am trying to be more intentional about doing, um, and I, I mean that sincerely because I've not been very good at it in the past, is I am trying to be better at detaching from work and not just taking a vacation in the summertime because that's when we normally take vacations, but actually carving out time throughout the year where I disconnect and detach. Um, because without that, I think that burnout is the inevitable result. And, and for me, I mean, individual burnout, right? Like I know burnout can be workplace stress. And since I work for myself, I guess my workplace would be the place generating the stress. But I think it's important to take time away and to give myself time to recharge and to connect with my friends and my family and to not have to think about work in any capacity. And I am not good at that right now at this moment, but that is something that I know helps me when I give myself permission to do it. And so I'm really trying to be more intentional about detaching. Um, and the other thing that I try to do on a more regular basis that again, work in progress, exercise, because when I move and I'm active, that also helps me, particularly when I can take hikes and go out in nature. Like that's really very restorative for me. Um, and so exercise, detaching from work completely and kind of consuming information on a regular basis are three of the things that I do to try to stay sharp. Beautiful. What is being dauntless? And then let us know where we can find you on social. I know you're on Twitter and your website as well, but let's end with dauntless. And what does being dauntless mean? I think that was just such a cool word that I don't often see. And you mentioned daunting earlier, but yep. talk about dauntless and then let people know where they can find you. So one of my identities that I haven't talked about is I'm a super kind of sci-fi geek nerd. I love speculative fiction. So the word dauntless actually comes from the movie Divergent. And it's one of the five factions that they talk about um, in the movie. Um, the four other factions are erudite, which is about intelligence, candor, which is about truth and honesty, abnegation, which is about being selfless and amity, which is about being kind and dauntless is about being fearless. And so um, that one resonates with me because I think, you know, fear can stop us from doing so much. Fear and doubt can stop us from doing so much. Um, and interestingly, there are many times when the fear exists primarily in our own minds. So instead of saying fearless, I like the word dauntless because it, it, it has a different sound to it to me. Um, and it just, it, there's a boldness to the word that I like that still communicates the same thing about like, just do it. Like just take that step, take the risk, jump, right? And see what happens, right? Because, you know, yes, there's another quote that I like that says, what if you fail? Um, but the end of the quote says, yes, but oh my darling, what if you fly? 
So I like the, the being dauntless part of that. Um, and I strive to do that as well on a regular basis. Still a work in progress, but I'm trying and that's what counts. So where can you find me? Um, I am on Twitter at, uh, at Dr. Kenza, D-R-K-E-N-S-A. Um, if you wanna check out my website for any reason, you can certainly find me there at www.drkenza, again, D-R-K-E-N-S-A.com. And I'm also on LinkedIn under my name, Dr. Kenza Gunter. Those are the three places that you can find me. Beautiful. We play in similar spaces. I'm on Twitter at Brian Levinson and LinkedIn at Brian Levinson. Highly recommend people check out Dr. Kenza. And thank you so much. I think I hear my daughter crying. So I think they are now home and I'm going to go make sure that they are sane, which is always daunting. But I'll try <laughs> to do it with as much dauntlessness as possible. Yes, uh, thank you for all you do for our field. Thanks for all you do for those that are feeling like they are the only. I think your story is inspiring and your way with words is encouraging. So I appreciate you. And hopefully one day uh, I can be in Atlanta and we can grab a cup of coffee or you're in DC and we can talk all things performance psychology and uh, appreciate you deeply and great to meet you. So thank you. I, for would, your time. I would love that. Thank you so much for your time. This has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for listening to intentional performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. And this really speaks to the S in GPS. So the G is gratitude. The P is patience. The S is strength and it's strength to grow. I really felt like, look, I know what it's like to be in a comfort zone and to have the rug ripped out from under you. So let me try to push myself beyond what I feel is comfortable and, and see what that feels like, right? It's this idea of um, wanting to, to spread my branches, wanting to grow more branches back to the tree, right? Feeling like I had good roots, um, but wanting to grow and to do so, that meant I had to spread beyond the comfort zone where I was. And, 